please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. A few weeks ago, when Pastor Johnson asked me to consider preaching this evening, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to preach on, and uh, on Monday, I decided I wanted to preach on the Incarnation, and this text came to mind. I sent Mary, my mother-in-law, the text and the title of the sermon, and on Tuesday or Wednesday, I remembered that Pastor Johnson had preached through the book of Isaiah a number of years ago, and so I went on to sermon audio, and I thought, you know, I think it'd be great to hear Pastor Johnson preach on this text, realizing I'm about to preach on it. And uh, I clicked on the Isaiah 9, and he has about 70 sermons, I think, thereabouts on the book of Isaiah. And uh, my name came up, and I, I realized that five years ago, in 2017, I preached on this same text, and I had completely forgotten. Uh, so anyway, I doubt anyone remembers it, and that's completely fine. So... I wanted to choose this text, though, because I believe that the, the gospel and the seeds of the gospel really are in this passage. I think it's very helpful to consider uh, how this passage points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, I will admit this is around the time of Christmas when we celebrate the birth of, of our Savior. So there are three different realities uh, I use the word reality, even though it's not in this passage, because I can't think of a better word, but there are three different realities that help us point, or help us to understand and point us to, to Christ and to the gospel. And the first reality that we have is really in verse 2, 
the reality of living in darkness. Uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. This is the time of the divided monarchy after the reign of uh, Solomon. Give you some historical context. King Uzziah was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He died around 740 BC. And uh, the kingdom of Assyria around this time was becoming a powerful nation. And they were threatening Israel to the north and, th- and Judah to the south. They had their eye on Egypt, the wealth of Egypt, and Israel and Judah stood in their way. And so um, even though Uzziah was a good king and he had a strong army and he was a good leader, after Uzziah died, there were a number of not-so-great kings and not-so-great leaders. Ahaz was one who was not a great king. Um, There was some corruption. There was a lack of trust in the Lord. And this is around the time that Isaiah prophesied. It was a time of darkness, a time of insecurity. There's political insecurity. There's a geopolitical insecurity. Perhaps there was a time of anxiety for the people living in Judah. And uh, Christians are people who recognize that the world is a dark place. Uh, there's a lot of, even though we have a very different political context today, the darkness remains, in, uh, remains with us. If you look back at uh, chapter 8, if you have your copy of God's Word, in verse 4, uh, actually verse 3, Isaiah, it, it says this about Isaiah, I went to the prophetess, and by the way, the prophetess is his wife, And she conceived and bore a son, and then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshalal Hashbaz. I think I got that right. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Um, And then it goes on. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah, that flow gently and rejoice over resin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all the channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on, on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So this... This time in Israel's, uh, Judah's history was a time of darkness and uh, a time that uh, not only was geopolitical darkness, but there was even, you might say, a representation of evil. And the question then for them was, how do we get out of this? And their solution that many people looked to was not to the Lord. Uh, many people looked towards the earth. In fact, in verse 19... Uh, it says, of verse, excuse me, of chapter 8, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? There is a number of people who are seeking mediums and necromancers, which are ways to get in touch with, uh, not the Lord, but with evil spirits, people turning to false gods. 
They also turn to the earth in verse 22. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Um, The message of of the book of Isaiah and the message of, of the Bible in general is not that we can create a world of peace. It's not that we can look to the earth and if you try hard enough, uh, through some political program or scientific advancement or, you know, environmental regulation or deregulation, that our problems will go away and that the darkness will be dispelled. Uh, our hope is not in the earth, and therefore we don't look towards the earth. There's not a five-step program or a new house or car or job that will ultimately make ourselves completely happy and satisfied. So Christians acknowledge reality that there is darkness in the world and that it won't easily go away. And there's, we also recognize in verse 2 that the darkness is within us. Um, it says in verse, chapter 9, verse 2, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on them, on them, a light shined. It's not, the light's not within them. The light doesn't come from them. The light comes from outside of them. So our salvation does not lie in us. Uh, the, the Christmas message is not try harder, cheer up. And of course, we aren't Eeyores, though. We are not, we, we read a lot of Winnie the Pooh in my house. And uh, Eeyore is someone who always sees the glass half empty, or not even halfway full, not even, you know, there's nothing there, and he's never cheery. And so Christians, even though we believe that darkness is here and that darkness is persistent and that darkness won't easily go away, nevertheless, we believe in a second reality, and that's the reality of light. Uh, On them a light has shone. And that hope is something that comes not from within us. The light shines upon us from the outside. This is in full accord with the rest of Scripture. So John, just to quote a few verses, I'll have you turn to to the book of Matthew in a minute. But for now, just listen. Here is how John speaks of the Lord Jesus. Particularly, John, John in particular portrays Jesus as someone who is a light. He is a light. So John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Or John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, he says it again in John twelve forty six. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Um, Isaiah calls the people to turn to the Lord again and again to repent of sin, but the focus here is not within us. It's not something, immediate, an immediate action for us. It's really to acknowledge that our hope is in someone else. The salvation comes from the outside. Um, And that's what we have in Christ. Christ is the source of our life. 
Uh, he is the light of the world. And he, though he was infinitely high and a part of God himself, is a part of God himself, he nonetheless became low, taking on flesh in order to walk in our darkness and to go to the cross and suffer the wrath of God for us. I titled this sermon, A Light When All Other Lights Go Out. And that's because Christ has come to go where no other companion goes. (laughs) Uh, He has gone into the darkest darkness, into the wrath of God. Now, I've saved some of the other verses for the last reality. And uh, the first reality was that we're living, we live in darkness. The second reality is, nonetheless, there is light. Christ is the light. But the third reality is that there's a redeeming power. God's redeeming power is at work uh, in the gospel. So if you look at verse 4, this is what Isaiah says, that the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Uh, To Isaiah, a serious strength is really nothing in comparison to God's great might. Uh, Assyria, that great nation, is really nothing in comparison. Now, he's using the terms that may be referring to the Exodus. Uh, if you remember, the, God's people had a yoke. They had a burden. They had an affliction upon them in the land of Egypt. There, were, um, there was a rod on their back. <laughs> they were oppressed. And yet the Lord, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, uh, rescued them from that oppression and brought them out. And if he did that with the, through, um, through Moses as a servant, could he not do that again? Uh, I, think, I think the message is clear that he could. He could do that again. And nonetheless, he also refers to Midian uh, in the end of verse 4. You've broken as on the day of Midian. If you remember Midian, Midian was in the book of Judges. Uh, The Midianites were enemies of the Lord's people. And uh, Gideon, that very unlikely hero, that uh, very, in some ways, meek leader, uh, God rose, rose him up or raised him up to, to lead an army. And there were 32,000 men who were a part of Gideon's army in the book of Judges, and yet God whittled, whittled them down to 10,000, and that still was too much, and so God whittled them down again to 300 people. And why? It was because after they defeated the Midianites, the Lord could say, that it was not by your might or by your power, but it was by my spirit that we, you were delivered. And there's a similar whittling process here. You wouldn't really notice it at first, maybe at first glance, but Isaiah speaks of the nation in verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. He's talking about many, many people, presumably, here. Many people in verse 3. But by the time you get down to verse Six, um, it's really just a child, just one person. 
And I think that you see the whittling process even in the book of Judges. You have people, there is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing right in their own eyes. And the story really from the time of Exodus and the wanderings in the wilderness, you see that it's a story of God's faithfulness and yet our unfaithfulness, the people's unfaithfulness. And over and over again, uh, even though the Lord is gracious and faithful to all of his promises, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And no one's really following the Lord. And yet here we have this one, um, a child, born to us, um, given to us. And I think the representation of this child as given to us uh, is really a gift. That's, I think, what's implied when it says, for to us, a child is born, a son is given. Uh, It's a gift. And uh, gifts are often surprises. (laughs) In some ways, I think, Um, B.B. Warfield, a great theologian, said that the Old Testament is a fully furnished but dimly lit room. I think what he meant by that is that everything in the gospel that's revealed to us in the New Testament was there and is there in seed form in the Old Testament. It's fully furnished. It's a house fully furnished, but the lights are kind of dim, and it's, it's hard to see clearly like you can in the New Testament, the full blossom in the New Testament. Uh, but in the New Testament, we see that this son who would be born would clearly be the Christ. And uh, of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. Now, I think what's surprising is that he relates to us in a way that's much closer than anyone anticipated. So the very last word in in verse 8 of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 8, is the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it was God's plan that he would relate to us so closely that he would, take a, he would take on flesh and dwell among us. That's how close he would relate to us. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said that God relates to us not as someone on the second story of a building would relate to someone on the first story of a building. He relates to us like Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Uh, God has written the story. And he's, he's written himself into the story. And, um, and while it's in seed form here in, in the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah, we see very clearly in the New Testament that this is Christ himself. And there's one particular passage I would like for you to turn with me to, if I can find it here, give me one minute, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Actually, I'll start in verse 12. Now when he, meaning Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Excuse me. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So even though the Bible is many different books, it's, a, it's an anthology of many different kinds of genres. Like you have apocalyptic literature, and you have historical narrative, and you have epistle, you, know, you have epistles, personal letters, you have wisdom literature. They are all one story, and Scripture interprets Scripture. And what is spoken of here in the book of Isaiah uh, as a son, we know, is referring actually to Christ. It's referring to Christ himself. Isaiah had a son, but we have a greater son. Uh, we have David's heir. And uh, he has come to do so much more for us than we anticipated He didn't just come to instill a new government, and that's what many of his followers thought. There's even a a time when his disciples come to Jesus and say, are you going to restore the kingdom uh, of Israel at this time? I think in their mind they're thinking, are you going to throw off the yoke of the, the Romans? The reality is that Christ came to inaugurate his new covenant, and there will come a day when he will consummate his kingdom. And the, and the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And yet, he's come to do far more than that. He's come to put away the sin and the death which have plagued us since the beginning of time, since Adam's fall. That's why when we sing uh, these hymns, I love these hymns we sing at Christmas, hark the herald angels sing, and we say, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them a second birth. That's why we celebrate and sing about the birth of Christ, is because we need a rebirth. We need to be born again. And um, this is what Christ has come to do. He has come to give us a new birth, to institute peace, And primarily, the peace that he's won for us is the peace between God and man, that we could not approach God because of our sin, your sin and my sin, and we need a mediator to atone for our sin. And so he has come to make peace. Um, The text doesn't give us a lot of information about the cost, the expense of that givenness, the expense of the child that is given to us. What did it cost God to give us this child? Uh, We can see the names here, that this is going to be someone we will call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see these wonderful things, but uh, we don't see what it actually cost God. And for a minute... I would just like us to dwell on what it cost God that you would be given a son. 
uh, that this son would be given to all of those who put their faith in him. I like to read literature, and one of the books that I enjoy reading is Les Miserables. Uh, Julie Rose has a great translation. If you ever are interested in reading Les Mis, it's pretty long, (laughs) so it's not for the faint of heart. But uh, there's a a man in uh, Les Mis who's the Bishop of Dean. And if you know the story, it's about Jean Valjean. He was a a criminal, uh, not because he intended to be a criminal. He stole bread to feed his family. He was put away uh, in prison, and in prison he became uh, hardened. He wasn't rehabilitated, but he became hardened. And when he was released from prison, many years later, uh, no one would let him in to stay the night. And so he's wandering around looking for a place to stay, and the bishop, he comes upon the bishop's house, and the bishop lets him in to stay for the night. And there's a passage in Les Mis that talks about uh, the bishop, and it says that he likes to dine with silver. He has a set of six silver knives and forks and a big soup ladle that sparkled gorgeously every day against the coarse white linen tablecloth. He has two big, solid silver candlesticks that held held wax candles. And he says to himself, it would be very hard for me to give up eating with silver. So he loves dining with silver. They have, uh, if I recall correctly, they have a meal. But then in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean takes the silverware. <laughs> and uh, he, he runs away with the silverware because he knows it, it's expensive. And Jean Valjean's caught. He's brought back to the bishop and um, by the police. And the bishop, and he knows he could, he could put Jean Valjean back in prison. But instead of doing that, the bishop says, you forgot the candlesticks. And he gives him the two big candlesticks and um, says something like, "You remember, you, you promise to use this to make yourself an honest man. And that scene has always stuck out to me. Why would the bishop give Jean Valjean the candlesticks? Doesn't he love the, doesn't he love the, the silverware and the candlesticks? Wouldn't it be hard for him to give up eating with silver? You know, why would, why would he do that? And it's because he, he loves Jean Valjean more than the candlesticks. Now, I imagine, though I know that this is not in Scripture, and I know that um, this is not in our passage, so please briefly endure with me just a moment longer. I could imagine an inter-Trinitarian, inter-Trinitarian council where God the Father is talking to God the Son. And God the Father is saying something like, my creatures, they are dwelling in darkness. <laughs> you know, I've given them the law, and I've given them the prophets, and I've given them the Psalms, and I've given them the scriptures, and I've given them priest after priest after priest, and I've given them king after king after king, I've given them prophet after prophet after prophet. And yet still, in spite of all of this, their hearts are turned away from me. And what is that thing that I love more than anything else? Well, it's, it's my only begotten son. And that's what we are celebrating when we speak about the incarnation 
It's that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're celebrating the love of God that he would give his son for you and for me. In spite of our sin, not because we're worthy, not because we deserve it, not because we're so wonderful, but in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of us stealing the candlesticks in the middle of the night and turning away from the Lord, that he would be gracious to us and give us the thing which he loves more than anything else, that he would give us his only begotten son. And so I would hope that uh, tonight throughout the week, that you would consider um, the love of God for you, that he would be a wonderful counselor to you, and that he would be someone who not only objectively brings you peace with God through his shed blood on the cross, but he also brings you a personal peace to you through his love for you. That's my hope. I. Uh, he is the only, the only light that can dispel any darkness in your life. And if you cultivate a relationship with him by his word, according to the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, through prayer, that light will shine into the darkest valleys of your life, and it will overcome that darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the givenness of your Son. We recognize that it cost you greatly. We thank you for your prophet Isaiah, who spoke of not only the darkness of the world and the darkness of his particular time, but the darkness of sin. And we thank you that in this dark world that you shined a light and that Christ is that light. And we thank you that he has gone, not through the shadow of death, but he has gone into the darkest, darkest pit, into death itself, into the wrath of God for us and for our salvation. I do pray that you would comfort us by your spirit. I pray that he would be to us a wonderful counselor, a, a mighty God, and that we would hope and trust in him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.